You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. You know, many people think of history as something that is static or unchanging. Now, that couldn't be farther from the truth. The fact is, history is constantly unfolding and evolving. The ways we collectively discuss and understand the events of our past, they shape our present and in many ways determine our future as well. And right now, more than any other time in recent memory, there's a significant shift toward thinking more about the role of equity in our historical narratives. And with Juneteenth coming up at the end of this week, the black American experience is top of mind for so many of us, myself included. That's part of the reason that Wayne State University has had special programming all week featuring many experts, writers, and others who are thinking critically about black life at this very moment. My next guest is going to be featured at one of the university's virtual events taking place tonight online from 7 until 9 p.m. Hannibal B. Johnson is a Harvard Law graduate, author, attorney, and consultant. Johnson serves on the Federal 400 Years of African American History Commission and is the education chair for the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Commission. His newest book is Black Wall Street 100, An American City Grapples with Its Historical Racial Trauma. Hannibal Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today on Detroit Today. Good morning. Uh, it's great to have you here. Um, you know, as we just saw, the, the, this, the, this is the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, um, it, and it happened just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this is something that we all have been hearing a lot more about now, I believe. Uh, but for those listening who are unfamiliar with this story, give us sort of the short version, uh, and then we'll get into some of the more specific nuances of the story as we go on. The short version is that Tulsa, Oklahoma, was home to one of the most successful black business districts in the country in the early part of the 20th century. It was renowned as Black Wall Street for the incredible amount of commerce in this segregated community just north of downtown Tulsa, separated by the Frisco tracks. That uh, successful black business community was obliterated on May 31st and June 1st of 1921 in what's called the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Essentially, it was a white mob who invaded the community, destroying virtually everything in sight, killing people. Uh, when the dust settled, somewhere between 100 and 300 people were killed. At least 1,250 homes in the, in the black community were destroyed. Property damage, conservatively estimated at the time, was $1.5 to $2 million in the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars today. Uh, many black folks were interned, like people of Japanese ancestry were interned during World War II during this horrific period. But the overarching narrative really has to do with the indomitable human spirit, the resilience of the black community, which was rebuilt in relatively short order and peaked in the mid to uh, early to mid-1940s. Then the community declined subsequently on account of integration and urban renewal, and today the community is in the midst of a renaissance, not really as a black mecca as it once was, but a community that is integrated and leverages and acknowledges its rich economic history. Now, I'm going to make an admission here. Um, I, 
you know, although I, I believe, I mean, I have a, I have a minor in history from, <laughs> from my undergraduate degree. Um, you know, I've been on this earth for 33 years now. Um, I don't think that I had heard about this story until it, it was sometime in the last year of my life. Um, and, and that to me is sort of shameful on, on multiple levels. The fact that I could go, uh, this long and be a, a student of history and and be interested in in these issues and and just not know about a story like this um, and 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 we can get into a lot of the ways in this conversation that that history is sort of erased for so many Americans. But first, I want to I'm curious for you. You know, you've written a book about this now. When did you first hear about this race massacre? Well, I came to Tulsa in the mid-1980s. I actually grew up in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is a town that's about 100 miles southeast of Tulsa. Didn't know much about Tulsa until I got here in the 80s, and even then didn't learn much about the history of the Greenwood District of like Wall Street for several years thereafter. I was asked to write a regular guest editorial column for the black newspaper called the Oklahoma Eagle, which I did, and at one point I was assigned to do a series about the history and that's when I really got engaged around the history. I ended up writing a number of books on this history, four books that focus pretty much exclusively on the Greenwood District and Black Wall Street, and then six other books on African-American history more, more generally. I think there, there are some fairly understandable reasons why people don't know this history. First and foremost, we as Americans don't do a good job of, of teaching uh, inclusive history. So the history of black folks and native folks and other folks uh, that are non-majority is often marginalized, if not erased, from the curriculum. So our problems in dealing with hard history are systemic problems, very much like our problems in dealing with racism are systemic as well. So going back to the to the story itself, um, I'm curious, uh, what did land look like back then in, in that part of Oklahoma? Um, you know, how how did the Greenwood District become a thriving black community in the first place? Um, I'm you know I'm curious, what is the what is the origin story there? We have to go way back and understand that there's a really close relationship between people of African ancestry and people of Native ancestry. So the so-called five civilized tribes, the Cherokees, the Choctaws, the Chickasaws, uh, the, the Seminoles, and the Muscogee Creek, uh, those were tribes that were based in the southeastern United States, and they were forcibly removed from that land to what was then Indian Territory in the 1830s and 1840s. All five of those tribes engaged in the practice of chattel slavery. So they had African people living in, among them who were enslaved. They also had free Africans living among them as well. So the first big migration of black folks to what is now Oklahoma came in the 1830s, 1940s with the five civilized tribes. In the late 1800s, there was a movement uh, called boosterism, whereby black folks who were coming to open lands in Oklahoma. Oklahoma had a number of land runs and land lotteries in the late 1800s, the first one being in 1889. A fellow named E.P. McCabe, a black man who was originally from New York but had been in Kansas and was a high-selected state official in Kansas, came into Oklahoma in the land run in 1889, founded the all-black town of Langston, and then began recruiting black folks to come to Oklahoma. So these people who were coming in, these so-called exodusters, populated the, the state. 
on the notion that they were escaping the, the rigid racism that existed in the Deep South. And also they were coming to essentially a promised land, a place where there was abundant land and an escape from the oppression, opportunity to be in uh, to be economically independent and to engage in self-governance. So Oklahoma then became popular for those reasons. Tulsa, at the turn of the century, began really to boom because of the discovery of oil. So there's a lot of wealth in Tulsa, and Tulsa was an attractive place for people uh, who were seeking new opportunities. The father of the Greenwood District, the father of Black Wall Street, O.W. Gurley, came to Tulsa originally from Arkansas. He came in the land run in 1889, came over to Tulsa in 1906, bought land, sold parcels to other African Americans, established his own businesses. And then the Greenwood District, the Black Wall Street community, just boomed from there. It was really much more of a black Main Street than a black Wall Street. Mm. These were small businesses, mom-and-pop type operations, and professionals like doctors and lawyers and accountants and dentists. Really a successful community in which dollars... Uh, circulated within the confines of this segregated Jim Crow community over and over and over. So the financial foundation of the community was solid because of the constraints on the on these black dollars. I'm talking to Hannibal B. Johnson, a Harvard Law graduate, author, attorney, and consultant. Johnson serves on the federal 400 Years of African American History Commission and is the education chair for the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Commission. His newest book is Black Wall Street 100, an American city grapples with its historical racial trauma. Hannibal Johnson will be part of a special Juneteenth programming event with Wayne State University tonight. Um, he will be, That will be happening between 7 and 9 p.m. tonight. The event is called 1921 to 2021, the centennial discussion on the Tulsa Black Wall Street Massacre. Uh, Mr. Johnson will be interviewed in the first hour by Ollie Johnson, who is the chair and professor of the Department of African American Studies at Wayne State University, and then joined in the second hour on, uh, on a panel moderated by Peter Hammer, who is a professor of law and director of the Damon J. Keith Center for Civil Rights, uh, and that will relate the experience of uh, Tulsa to those of Detroit as well. And uh, uh, Hannibal Johnson, I'm curious, you know, uh, when it comes to the way that tensions rose uh, in in Tulsa that led up to the massacre, I want to talk about the role of the Ku Klux Klan in that as well. Can you talk a little bit about the presence of the KKK in Oklahoma? Yeah, the, the Klan had a huge presence in Oklahoma throughout that decade, throughout the 1920s. And interestingly, the Klan started one of its first women's auxiliaries here in Tulsa and one of its first first youth chapters. So we know that some of the leaders in Tulsa, some of the founding fathers like Tate Brady, who was a property owner, wealthy businessman, was affiliated with the Klan here in, in Tulsa. And the Klan actually grew tremendously after the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, so the Klan was certainly a factor, as was the systemic racism that existed all over the United States. We know that what happened in Tulsa in 1921 comes on the heels of Red Summer, summer and fall of 1919, in which there were more than two dozen major so-called race riots throughout the United States. We also know that landlust played a role in the disturbance here. The Greenwood community abutted downtown Tulsa and was desired by some of the business leaders in the community 
the railroad executives wanted to put a railroad depot in the Greenwood community. So they wanted to move the black folks farther north and take the community, take that land for what they considered to be higher and better uses. And another uh, interesting example of how the tensions uh, grew in Tulsa was also it also had to do with the Tulsa Tribune. I'm curious what what was going on with that. The Tulsa Tribune was a really popular daily afternoon newspaper, but during this period, uh, the paper published a series of articles and editorials that really fomented hostility in sectors of the white community against the black community. For example. The incident that, that is credited with triggering the massacre, an elevator incident involving two teenagers, a black boy named Dick Rowland and a white girl named Sarah Page, it's the reportage of the incident rather than the incident itself that really fanned the flames of discord in the Tulsa community. The Tulsa Tribune, the day after the elevator incident, which was May 31st, 1921, that's the day after, published an article entitled, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in an Elevator. And this was a false narrative of an attempted rape in broad daylight in a public building uh, by a black boy on a white girl. And you can imagine that readers of the Tribune, who who gave it credence, were really alarmed when they saw the story. And that really ginned up the mob that ultimately invaded and destroyed the Greenwood community. In addition, three days after the devastation of the massacre, on June 4, 1921, the Tulsa Tribune published an editorial entitled, It Must Not Be Again. And it was a really vile piece of writing that essentially said that the destroyed black community was worthless and should never be built again. Mm. Um, in addition to that, the leadership of, of the city, including the mayor, the city commission, the chamber of commerce, and the grand jury convened after the massacre, really all referred to the disturbance as a Negro uprising. Mm. Talk about victim blaming. Mm-hmm. And and there's this uh, this connection I feel like to some of the the immediate sort of uh, re re uh, branding or or sort of uh, trying to spin events today that we see in in certain media, especially um, you know on pundit you know with pundits uh, ultra conservative um, you know channels as well. That that there's I mean it, it seems like. That's something that we hear a lot uh, these days, although the circumstances are quite different. I'm curious what you think of that. I think it's, it, it, it's absolutely true. Uh, it's absolutely true that um, we are in the midst of, in some quarters, revisionist history right now with respect to January the 6th, the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, we have folks who engage in projection to an incredible degree folks who create terms like cancel culture, and then when people call things what they really are, they want to cancel them. <laughs> How <laughs> ironic is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, the, I mean, again, there there do seem to be uh, a lot of through lines here to today and um, and, and so forth, uh, which are somewhat disturbing. But you know that it's, it's important that we're talking about that uh, to to see how those uh, how there's there's these similarities. Um, really quick, before uh, I have to let you go, there was something very large, very big that happened uh, yesterday, actually, in the U.S. Senate. Uh, the U.S. Senate unanimously approved a bill to make Juneteenth. 
a federal holiday. Uh, and, and you've done a lot of work in terms of making sure that, that history and history that reflects um, you know, the, the experiences of black and brown people here in, in the United States is told. What is your reaction to, to something like that, seeing uh, a unanimous vote of the U.S. Senate, even some extremely conservative people uh, saying that, yes, this should be a federal holiday? Uh, you know, it's certainly a, a welcome development, uh, and I think it reflects in part uh, the intense pressure for social justice brought about by the George Floyd murder and other things that have happened uh, in, in, in recent history. So it's in some ways perhaps a concession to that, uh, but I, I'll be interested to see how much progress we make toward uh, doing a study about reparations for slavery and some of the more difficult mm-hmm. stuff that really needs to be done if we're going to get to the core of systemic racism. Now, again, you're going to be part of this event with Wayne State tonight, uh, happening at 7 p.m. called 1921 to 19, or sorry, yeah, 1921 to 2021, uh, the centennial discussion on the Tulsa Black Wall Street massacre. We only have about a minute here, but what can people expect if they uh, tune into that event? I'm looking forward to a really robust conversation, um, not just about the history, but I'm going to use the word that you used earlier, which I which I love, through line, mm. about the through lines that connect our history to our present. For me, as the education chair of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, it really ha- has all been about how do we understand and leverage this history to serve our interests in the present. We know that we still face systemic, structural, institutional racism today. What are the lessons from our history that we can glean as we challenge things like mass incarceration, uh, black community police relations, um, educational deficits, healthcare disparities, the, the modern day manifestations, the modern day legacy of this systemic racism and trauma which has beset our our, our country mm-hmm. for centuries. Yeah. Hannibal B. Johnson is author, attorney, and consultant. He will be featured as part of that event tonight with Wayne State University at 7 p.m. You can find more information at events.wayne.edu. Hannibal Johnson, thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. You're welcome. And again, the book is Black Wall Street 100, An American City Grapples with Its Historical Racial Trauma. That's all for Detroit Today. Tune in tomorrow. Stephen Henderson will be back, and he'll have a conversation with two of the commissioners on Michigan's Independent Redistricting Commission ahead of their public meeting at TCF Center in Detroit. This is WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Thanks so much for joining us.